Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. This is now my second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of this coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the word that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord one day, the, to the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can have a seat. Good morning, everybody. It's really good to see you this morning. Let's pray, and we will get right down to work. Father, as Jesus taught us to pray, we pray this morning, your kingdom come, the kingdom that we just read about, the kingdom that we just sang about, and your will be done in Okinawa as it is in heaven and in our hearts in this room as it is in heaven. We pray this morning that you would give us our daily bread, remind us that we don't live and breathe, our souls are not satisfied, we are not fulfilled by any created thing, we are satisfied, we find our identity and our purpose, we uh, find life itself in you and you alone. Give us today our daily bread. Pray that you would forgive us our sins, our trespasses, uh, forgive us, Father, and incline our hearts to forgive those who have trespassed against us, sinned against us, in the same generous way that you have poured out your, your kindness and your mercy toward us. Father, you know our feet have a tendency to run away from you, so I pray this morning that you would uh, deliver us from evil and lead us away from temptation. Father, remind us this morning that it's all about your kingdom and your power and your glory so that we can be freed from our American values of living for our own little kingdoms under the perception of our own power or for our own fame or glory. I pray that you would rescue us from these things as we see the true and better in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. 
Amen. Hey, so we continue on in our series through 2 Peter. The series is entitled Gospel or Family Reminders. I'm sorry, Family Reminders Enduring Gospel Realities. Peter's at the end of his life and he's writing to young Christians, to churches just like ours to remind us some very important truths of the gospel that endure. They transcend from generation to generation. And these, these values, these gospel-shaped realities are meant to shape who we are as people, and the way that we live as a family. Our big idea from the text this morning is right here. It goes like this. As a people, we follow and feast because our Father is faithful to his promise. As a people, we follow and we feast because our Father is faithful to his promise. And some of you are like, man, John, promise should be plural there. Like God's made a lot of promises and he's faithful to all of them. And you're right, he has made a lot of promises, and he is faithful to each one of those promises. But Peter actually writes about one specific promise this morning, and I want to show it to you. It's in verse 13. And that promise is simply this, if you're taking notes, Jesus is coming back. That's the promise. Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back, he comes back as rescuing king. For those of you who have turned from your rebellion and turned to Jesus, you have nothing to fear in Jesus' return and everything to look forward to. But for those of you who have yet to turn from your rebel ways, you have yet to acknowledge Jesus as both your creator and your king, and you have yet to begin cultivating a God-centered and a God-satisfied life, the return of Jesus should strike fear into your heart. But here's the promise. It's in verse 13. Jesus is coming back. Peter says it this way, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That new heaven and that new earth, a restored, a restored world with a restored people happens when Jesus returns. That's the promise. We actually, I love the way the author of Revelation writes about it. And we read this in the opening to our gathering. Here it is, though it's worth reading twice. It goes like this, Revelation chapter 21, verses Three and four, John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people just as we were created to be. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now look at the hope of this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither will be their mourning, no more grief, no more sorrow, no more sadness, none it's gone. No crying, no pain. He's not just talking about physical pain. He's talking about the pain that you carry in your soul that builds up over a lifetime. All the wounds healed for the former things have passed away. That's the promise that Peter is writing about. Jesus is coming back. Or as Tolkien said, it is the day when everything sad comes untrue. That's the promise. Now, we promise is a very important word in chapter 3. Uh, we heard it as Grant read for us. In fact, if you go all the way to back to verse 4, here's the problem. Here's part of the reason Peter's writing. He said, look, there's going to be scoffers in every generation of the church, people who say, where is the fulfillment of this promise? You say he's coming back. It's been like 2,000 years since allegedly Jesus died and was buried and rose from the grave. If he really cares about injustice, where is he? If he really cares about righting wrongs and restoring peace and reconcil reconciling people, if all that is true, 2,000 years, 
What promise? What God? What faithful? Where is he? We have a real problem with this delay. We'll see this in, in verse in verse 9, right? The theme of promise continues. It says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any of you in this room should perish for your rebellion, but that all would come to repentance and find their way back home to the Father. See, what you and your rebellion has ta- have taken as proof that there is no God, proof that he doesn't care, proof that he's not powerful, in absence of his presence, pa- passivity, no, man, that's patience. That's God's patience. And the God of the universe is waiting for you to come home from your rebel ways back to the side of the Father. All right, so we have the promise. We have people uh, in every generation saying, yeah, but where is the promise? We see that God is delaying his return for your good so you would come home. And then Peter leads us to this question in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, right? If all of this is true, if this is all true, what kind of people ought we to be? And that's the question that we'll answer in our short sermon this morning. Actually, that's basically chapter uh, three of Second Peter right there. There's your sermon, right? You got the big idea. You got the flow of the argument. And we need to do some important things today, some exciting things. We're going to baptize Uh, We are going to commission our church plant to the city of Ginawan in Okinawa. So we have some very important things to do, but we're going to use this passage, this beautiful passage, as a springboard for those important things, because I want to show you how everything that we do today and everything that we do as a church is all because of this promise that the Father has made. That's it. That's the singular reason. So we can connect it all uh, this morning. And I do want to I do want to take a closer look with you, okay? So let's, let's begin taking, taking a little bit of a closer look, and uh, let's just unpack these scoffers here in verses 1 to 7. Right, we notice uh, Peter said there will be people that call into question God's promise. He calls them scoffers. He says something important about them in verse 3. It's not on the screen, but I'll read it to you. He says, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, and and they're going to decide to follow their own sinful desires. I mean, that's the one good option left to you if Jesus isn't coming back. If Jesus isn't coming back to right wrongs and to assert his kingly rule, if Jesus isn't coming back to hold you accountable, if there isn't a better and right life beyond this one, then your only hope to live life and be joyful is to do whatever your heart tells you to do in this lifetime and to follow every desire that you have to its greatest end, and you need to use people along the way to make sure that you get what your heart tells you you need. That's the alternative if Jesus isn't coming back. They say, where is the promise of his coming? And what these scoffers do is they look and they say, look, John, nothing has changed in my entire life. Nothing has changed in the history of the world. Nothing has changed since the beginning of time. Generation of people after generation of people have died. Has God returned? No. Has injustice been eradicated? No. Everywhere I look, I see injustice. In every culture, it's not just an American problem. Look, John, I live overseas. I've traveled the world. I see injustice everywhere I go. What God? What promise? What return? What rightness? Do you know the systemic abuse that lives in my own family? 
Do you know the brokenness that exists in my own soul? Do you know the dependencies that I wrestle with? The, the, the longings, the cravings that I feel enslaved to that I can't break? Nothing changes. The sun rises, another day of brokenness in this world. We do what we can to get what we can and to, be, to, to find just a modicum of peace and joy, but nothing changes. The sun sets and my heart is still empty and the world is still broken. And the next morning, the sun rises again on a broken world. Nothing changes. But Peter says, now look, you're scoffing, but you're, you're overlooking one very important thing. Things do change. In fact, he points to creation and he says, as it was in the beginning, out of water and through water, by the word, God created the world. And it was right and it was good and it was beautiful. Uh, but then it was broken through the rebellion of mankind. And what was beautiful became absolutely broken. It was crushed under the weight of our rebellion. And so Peter says, look, history shows that in the same way that by water and through water, by the word of God, God created by water and through water, by the word of God, God judged. Things changed big time. Things are not as they were at all. Things are not as they were. And then Peter points their attention to this. Look at this in verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That's Peter's way of saying, we could simplify it this way, just as, as there was a flood of water in judgment for our rebellion, things changed. So there is coming a flood of fire in judgment for your rebellion. Things changed and they will change again. The water, the, the real flood that happened, the historical event that took place took place in judgment for mankind's rebellion, but it foreshadows a greater judgment that will come for the rebellion of mankind, my rebellion and your rebellion. But rather than a flood of water, it will fall as a flood of fire. And what Peter is pointing to is the day of the Lord. That's our next paragraph between verses 8 and 10. Uh, the, the day of the Lord. And uh, Peter introduces it with an interesting verse. Uh, he, he says, you've heard this before, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. He's, he's answering the scoffers. Now, unfortunately, that verse has been taken and treated like it's some interpretive key, like a secret, like, uh, what's his name in National Treasure? Who was that? Nicholas Cage. But what's the family in that movie? Mm. Like, where are the gates? and we're on some treasure hunt. And there are secrets that are buried somewhere and they are clues to decoding complicated uh, hidden secrets in the Bible. And if you just have certain letters and certain numbers and glasses, when I grew up, you could get 3D glasses in your cereal box. I thought that was part of the whole jam, right? Certain glasses that you get a secret interpretive lens and then an entire chart gets built out, right? Okay, if one day equals 1,000 years, then this happened then, and this will happen, that happened there, and so Jesus will come back, and throughout history, people have made so many predictions, and guess what, not one of them's come true yet, because it's not meant to be used to formulate a chart. Peter's whole point is, you don't keep time like God keeps time, and who in the world do you think you are to accuse God of delay? How long have you been alive? 35 years? 
Wow. So your 35 years qualifies you to question the God who hung the sun, the moon, and the stars in the universe, and the God who created the world in which you live, and by the way, created you. But your 45 years on this spinning rock has qualified you to question God's timing in the world. Peter's doing a little pushback here. Get back. Get back. And then he points them to the good news of the gospel. And just quite honestly, some of you, this is, this is the only reason you're here this morning. You need to hear this good news. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. As some of you, scoffing would count slowness. Like you're accusing God of slowness. It's not slowness. It's not proof. It's patience. He's patient towards you, not wishing that any, any of you in this room should die and face the judgment that you deserve for your rebellion against the holy God who created you and gave you life. Rather, his desire is that every one of you seated in this room would reach repentance, meaning you acknowledge your rebellion, you acknowledge God's worthiness, that he, he, deserves, he deserves for you to come back home, and that you need to come back home, and that you do, in fact, come back home. Look at what he says in verse 10. He says, the day of the Lord, look, it's going to come like a thief anyway in the night, which just reinforces the whole point about don't use that verse about one day is a thousand years for a chart, right? This is why everybody's wrong. God's return, Jesus' return will be like a thief. Do you put that night on your calendar? You plan for the thief to break into your house? You schedule it out. You have no idea. We have have no idea. That's That's what he's saying. We have no idea. But on that day, the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Look, just acknowledgement, there is a storm of words in this chapter, right? Like a a typhoon has blown in. It's not rain and wind. It's a storm of words. And sometimes in the Bible, it's really hard to tell the difference between symbolism, like metaphor, and reality. But here's the reality. The God who dwells in unapproachable light at the day of the Lord will come near his creation. And we cannot be in all of our wickedness. We cannot be in his presence. And you can almost see like this cascading, collapsing effect of the universe as God draws near. Things burn up and fall apart. First in the heavens, space, right? The space X can't take you far enough away to escape this collapse of the universe, as God comes near and fire is used as imagery here, but should be understood to a literal degree as well because he already said, just as there was a flood of water in judgment, so there will be a flood of fire. Look, if you are far from God, the unpredictability of the day of the Lord should strike fear into your heart. God is delaying, look, Let this sink in. The God of the universe is delaying his return, a return in which he will actually restore everything to the way it's supposed to be. He's delaying that so that you have time to come home. What in the world are you waiting for? It's clear what God's waiting for because he desires to show you mercy and kindness instead of judgment. But you're doing the calculation and you think you can get away with one or two or three more days, weeks, months, or years away from the Father. But the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. That should strike real fear into your heart. God says the day of the Lord will expose everything and bring everything to the light. It is an inescapable judgment that's coming. There's nowhere that you can go. Uh, This passage reminded me of the prodigal son. 
the son who took his father's inheritance and went a long way from home. And when he ran out of money and realized he was created to be at home with the father, he dropped everything and ran back, not knowing what to expect from his dad, but when he got home, he found mercy. Guys, do you know why Jesus didn't come back yesterday in the day of the Lord in judgment? He didn't come back because there are some of you in this room who have yet to come home. Jesus didn't come back yesterday so that the story of the prodigal son can play itself out again today. We have no idea if there will be time for it to play out tomorrow. But you and your rebellion so far from the God who created you can walk your way home to the Father is waiting to give you an embrace and mercy today because he delayed yet again and the sun rose on your life again today so that you can know mercy. That's the good news of the gospel. So it should strike fear in your heart if you're a rebel far from the Father's side. But if you have been forgiven, if you have been brought home to the Father, the day of the Lord is not a fearful thing. And that's our final section, the promise between verses 11 and 13. In fact, Peter says it this way in verse 13. He says, since, or I'm sorry, he says, according to his promise, we are waiting. Okay, we're not waiting in fear. We're waiting for the fulfillment of our Father's promise. And what's that promise? Uh, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. He's not annihilating one so that there will be another one. It's speaking of a restoration of what is. And in that restoration, look at, I love this line, righteousness dwells. So right, rightness will have a street address in this new world. You know what can't have a street address in this new world? Injustice, selfishness, abuse, loneliness, grief, sorrow, guilt, shame. Uh, zoning prohibits them from building a home in the new earth. The only thing, the only thing, the only home that will have a street address in God's forever kingdom is righteousness, restored peace, joy. All will be well. Every sad thing will come untrue. And so Peter asks this question, right, in verse 11. He says, since all of these things are true, family, what sort of people ought you to be? So there's our question, right? There's our question for the morning. What kind of people should we be? since God has made this promise and because he's faithful to these promises. Well, Peter doesn't leave us to guess. He actually says, what, what kind of people ought we to be? Well, in lives of holiness and godliness, we're going to see four words here, lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. You should probably circle that word, hastening the coming day of God. Did you know that your obedience has an effect on the timing of the day of the Lord? Whoa. Did you know that? I mean, there it is, right there, hastening. So let's look at these four words briefly, lives of holiness and godliness. When I see those words, holiness and godliness, I think about the difference between the first Adam and the second Adam, okay? Adam was created, Adam and Eve were created to live lives that were God-centered and God-satisfied for the good of other people. That's what he meant when he told them to exercise dominion. He said he created them. He said, you're going to be, uh, everything that your heart needs and wants will be found in your relationship with me, which frees you up to live in a radically self-giving kind of way for the good and the flourishing of other people with all of the gifts and the strengths that I've given you. But Adam and Eve turned inward. Their lives, uh, they, they, they ceased to be God-centered and God-satisfied. And when that happened, they no longer lived lived for the good of others and for the flourishing of others, we turn inward on ourselves and we live for our own good and our own flourishing, and we use people and creation as a means to that end. First Adam. 
So God the Father in his kindness sends second Adam. We know Jesus is the true and better. We know him from scripture as the second Adam. And Jesus, in all the ways that Adam and Eve lived, failed to live, God-centered and God-satisfied, Jesus lived a God-centered, God-satisfied life. Submissive to the Father, obedient to the Father, radically self-giving to the point that Jesus would give his lives in place of ours. He would die so that we could live and be restored to the Father, okay? Holiness and godliness. We love what God loves. We hate what God hates. And our lives increasingly reflect the character of God. But then there are two more words, waiting and hastening. In the Bible, the word waiting for God's family is never passive. It's not like, oh, all we do is sit around and wait. Like God's coming back, we just wait. Wait is an active word. It's not passive. Waiting is also not a protective word. There have been kind of, throughout church history, there are impulses within the church to pull back, to build communes and cloisters and convents and what else? Hmm? Monasteries. Monasteries. I was going for C words though. Now we got a new alliteration. Okay, monasteries and monk places and we just keep going. But to build walls and to build protection and, 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 and that's not what waiting is. In the waiting, we follow Jesus, and where did Jesus go? To the darkest corner and to the deepest places where the most brokenness existed. So in the waiting, we follow Jesus to the very same places that he went, living radically God-centered, God-satisfied lives, using our strength and our gifts for the good and flourishing of others. We could say it this way, tomorrow's promise sets today's priority. You want to know how to live? This is how you live as a follower of Jesus. Tomorrow's promise that Jesus is coming back sets today's priority. That's how we live. And so let's ask this question then. What is our priority today then in light of his return? It's right here. We follow and we feast. As a family, we follow and we feast. And this is how I want to kind of help us come home and see the connection between our baptisms and our church planting today. We follow and we feast. Let's start with following. There are two primary ways that we follow Jesus as a family. We follow him through baptism uh, into a community. Uh, we, we'll see that baptism is a sign of the promise, okay? Baptism is the sign of the promise. So we follow him through baptism, taking on the sign of this promise that we believe and then as we take on that sign, we're adopted into a community and that community is sent with the promise to establish, establish what we'll call colonies of promise in the deepest and the darkest places. We see this clearly in the New Testament. Here's Acts 2, 38 and 39. Jesus, uh, Peter said, uh, as it relates to baptism, listen, you need to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise. The promise is for you and for your children and are all who are far off. That's good news for some of you, because some of you came in here this morning knowing that you were far away from the Father. You're like, that promise, there's no way it's for me. Well, <laughs> there it is right there. For those of you who are the farthest away from the Father in your re gross rebellion today, in your sorrow, in your pain, in your guilt, in your shame, the promise is especially for you. And baptism is the sign of the promise. So at the end of our worship gathering, we have two people 
scheduled to be baptized uh, at the end of this service, one person to be scheduled at the bapti- to be baptized at the end of the second service. Uh, but I have two sets of clothes and two towels in here because I know, I'm sorry, they're, uh, they're my clothes, so they would, like, for dudes, so <laughs> there is an exchange right inside the gate, and we can, we can work something else out for you ladies. I brought those this morning because I believe that there are people in this room who have a profession of faith in Jesus with their mouth, but they have yet to take on the sign of the promise. The only sign of the promise is baptism. It is how we confess with our entire bodies that I believe that Jesus is my rescuing king, and I believe that he is coming again to make all things right, and I need his rescuing work in my life. And there are some of you in this room who have made a profession of that faith and don't yet know that there is a sign that goes along with that promise, and maybe it is today. Maybe today is the day for you uh, that you will, for the first time, take on the sign of that promise. And I love the language because in that paragraph, Peter calls us children of the promise. And that's what we are in baptism. We are children of the promise. God gives us a sign. And we'll celebrate that this morning through baptism. And in that sign, through that act of baptism, um, we, are, we are welcome into the family. And I should just say, listen, we don't baptize any perfect people here. The only perfect person was baptized about 2,000 years ago. He was baptized twice. He was baptized in the Jordan River. And then he was baptized as his body was taken off of the cross and buried in the belly of the earth. And he rose again from that baptism into death so that you could be baptized by faith, united with him in a death like his, so that you can be united with him and, and rise again in a life like his. And some of you need, some of you want to take on that sign of the promise this morning. So we are given the sign of the promise, and then we don't live in a cloister or a convent. The Father sends us with this promise to establish what we'll call colonies of promise. Look at this in Acts 1.8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Fam, you got orders to the end of the earth, okay? That's what your monitor meant to tell you, the detailer. Okinawa. What he meant to say was, Okinawa is one of those places that is so far away from the epicenter of where Jesus was, you are now in the end of the earth. Uh, By the way, uh, lower your view of America. When you live there, you are also living in a place that is known as the end of the earth. You are living there as a representative of God's true and better kingdom. America is not the kingdom of God. Okay, sometimes we just have to like be real clear on that and separate those things out. Jesus said it this way. Look at this, Matthew 24. He said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then what? Hey fam, your obedience impacts the timing of the coming day of the Lord. Think about that. Jesus invites you to pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. Fix all the brokenness, make all the sad things untrue. Did you know that you were invited in to not only pray, but to participate, that your participation hastens, that was Peter's word, your participation speeds up the coming of the day of the Lord in which every sad thing will come untrue. And we do that when as a community of children of the promise, we take that sign 
and we are sent with the promise to establish colonies where the promise is not fully known. And that's exactly what we're doing this morning when we're sending out, we're commissioning our church's church plant to the small city of Ginawan down by Fatema. Uh, I'm going to read a few names, and if you're in the room, would you please come uh, join me down front? First, John and Melissa Simberger from Illinois. Whoever's with you, John, right now, it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll do it again in the second service. So we get John and it's like Moses, okay? And Chicago uh, from Okinawa. Are you here this morning, Chicago? Maybe in the second. Um, Chicago's been a part of our family longer than anybody else in this room, except for about three of us. And Gracious Shavers, who also calls Okinawa home. Are you here this morning, Gracious, in the nine? Nope. All right. I knew most of them were going to come in the second service. That's okay. Tatsuya, second service. From Fukuoka, the Cipriano family from the great state of Missouri. Jonathan Frank from California. Man, you really did come alone this morning. Wow. Good thing you came with dad, dude. And we got the Smith family. I know you guys are here from uh, Maryland and Okinawa. And A.C. Ayuman from the Philippines. And the Sprague family from Pennsylvania and Osaka. Come on down, Ryan. I want, oh, there you are. Come on down. I wanted to put the, uh, to list where they're from as a demonstration family. Look at this. Look at how committed God is to sending colonies of promise to places where the promise is not fully known, where he's committed to sending his family members, children of the promise, to places to tell people that there is a day coming when all sad things will come untrue. Did you notice the diversity of where these people come from? The Philippines, various cities in Japan, and various cities across the U.S. Did you know that not a single one of these people knew each other? prior to moving here to Okinawa and eventually becoming a part of the same family. And then, well, okay, you two knew each other. <laughs> prior to their commitment to form as a team and go and plant a church. All right. Hey, Moses, can I hold you? Can I hold you? We could put him in the water in the baptistry. <laughs> he could just play while we talk. Yeah. All right, guys, listen. You're planting a church. You and your core team are planting a church. And this is our commissioning service where we are officially sending you guys out. Um, planting a church is a big deal, but I want to use the weighty language that is really true. It's not just that you're planting a new church in Okinawa. You are establishing a colony of promise where the promise is not fully known. You are taking the sign of the promise, baptism, and you will baptize uh, former rebels into God's family now as sons and daughters, and they will be reconciled through the community, the colony of promise that you will establish. But the thing about colonies of promise is they are always established in places that are spiritually dark and spiritually dangerous. You and your team will face incredible opposition, and nothing will be accomplished in your own strength. I think of uh, Joshua and the spies that went in to scout out the land. And what do they come back with? All afraid and told pe God's people, don't go in there. Why? All right, we're going to preach a new sermon series. There were giants in the land. Okay, look, Jesus comes 
and he sends us out and he does us a favor and he just looks us in the eyes and says, I'm gonna send you to the end of the earth where there are giants. So we go places now, not because it's safe and there aren't giants. We go there because there are giants and they need to be overcome with the promise of Jesus' soon return where he will make all the sad things come untrue. But you don't go into this land to establish a colony of promise in your own strength. The God of angel armies goes before you and is around you and is with you, and he is going to accomplish big things for the flourishing of people and for his fame through the work that you're going to do. Hi, Mahari. I'm glad you made it over here. What else should we say, Moses? We're going to pray over this team. Uh, the team in most of its entirety will be here in the second worship gathering and we will pray again. But I would invite you, would you stand with me? And if you are comfortable doing so, would you extend your hand uh, just as a gesture that you are praying with me and have a strong desire to, to see God work through his spirit uh, through this team. And uh, Moses and I will pray. Father, we rehearse the gospel this morning. We remind uh, each other that we are children of promise, that Jesus is our rescuing king and he's coming to make all things right. And we rehearse that we are not called to live safe or comfortable lives. We are, we are, live, we are called to establish communities of promise, to go to places that are dangerous or desperate or dark, to go to places that are filled with grief and loneliness and sorrow because there is no knowledge of a promise-making, promise-keeping God, and there is no knowledge that Jesus will come again, and there is no knowledge that there is actually coming a day where all of the sad things will come untrue. And so, Father, it is an incredible honor as a family, now just six years old, to commission a small team that will go together into a difficult place and establish a beachhead, establish a community to proclaim the promise to point people to Jesus and to welcome strangers and rebels and outcasts and foreigners to take a seat at your table where all are welcome and there is no admission fee because Jesus, the true and better son, has done everything necessary to pay with his own blood for our entrance into the kingdom. Father, they go into a land filled with giants, so when their faith wavers, remind them that you are with them, you go before them, you surround them. You are the God of angel armies, and you promise that you will build your church. You will do the good work through them. May their hearts be filled with faith and with confidence, and may we celebrate as rebel after rebel comes home from a long ways off, repents, takes the sign of the promise, and experiences life as a son or a daughter of you, their creator and their king. And we pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hey, family, I think we need to give this crew right here a big round of applause for what they're about to do. All right. Is that it, Moses? Why don't you tell them all to take their seats? Let's practice. Ready? There you go. Right. Okay. Hey, we have to start wrapping this thing because we have baptisms in a few moments. Uh, just a few more words I want to say. 
We don't just follow family. In the waiting, we are a feasting family. And uh, this could be its own second sermon, but I just want to say, when you look through the Bible, anytime God's people are waiting, they are a feasting family. Think about the Passover. They were feasting in anticipation of God's rescue. And every year, God's people feast to celebrate the rescue that took place and to anticipate the true and better rescue that is to come. That's why we share communion every, su- every Sunday. That is a feast in miniature to remind us that our souls are satisfied when we feast on the body and the blood of Christ, who is the bread of life. And our souls will only starve if we live to feast ourselves on the created world or other people, right? We're a feasting family. That's why once a quarter we have a family feast. The food trucks are already starting to show up. We feast. We don't need another reason to feast other than our God is a promise-making and promise-keeping Father. We feast. We are a feasting family. Today we feast in honor of John and Melissa Simberger and the core team that's going to plant. We feast in their honor. For those who are being baptized today, we feast in your honor. Guys, every feast is a foretaste of the kingdom come. Every feast is a foretaste of the day when all of the sad things will come untrue, when souls will be satisfied, when thirst will be uh, quenched, and there will be no stranger or alien, alienated person or anyone suffering injustice, but everyone will have a seat at our Father's table. Every feast is a foretaste. And every feast is a fatal blow to the kingdom of darkness. Jesus dealt the ultimate fatal blow when he climbed up out of that grave and defeated death with with his life. And every time we as a family uh, feast together, we deal another fatal blow to the kingdom of darkness. It's a reminder that that kingdom is dying, that death is fading, that the darkness is being dispelled. The clouds are being dispelled. The shadows are scattering because the king of the universe, Jesus, who dwells in incredible life-giving light, is fast approaching, and the day is coming when all of the sad things come untrue. So while we wait, we don't just follow into dangerous places for the good of other people. We feast all along the way. And John, honestly, the most powerful thing that you can do Worry less about a building and worry more about a banquet table where you plant this community of children of the promise because feasting is the greatest sign pointing people to Jesus as the true and better. And to that end, uh, John, I actually have, could you just come back down real quick? As we always do, I'm pushing time limits a little bit, but I want to give you something. Um, And let me just explain real quick. Uh, First of all, your jersey did not come in. But we have a cardinal shirt for Melissa, one for Mahari, one for Maya. Check this out, Moses. Where you at, dog? There's yours. Okay, so there's your, yours is coming. You. Yours actually reflects Albert Pujols' 703rd home run from this season. And I wanted to give you a shepherding staff as a leader of this core team, but I'm not a shepherd in that sense, and I've never had a staff. But I do have a baseball bat, and... Um, Here's how it connects to feasting and rest. Albert Pujols hit his 703rd home run. Uh, They keep track of everything now. So his average trot around the bases after a home run was 26 seconds per home run. Calculated over his entire career, that's over five hours of just jogging slowly around the bases. You know what he was doing while he was jogging? Celebrating and resting. The most important thing that you guys will do as a church plant and as a leader in that church plant is to lead 
your team, your people, to rest and to celebrate and to feast the good work that God is doing. This bat was given to me when my family and I planted Pillar uh, of Okinawa. It says, Ransom Family and Pillar Church of Okinawa, we're praying for you. Then a little cheesy line to knock it out of the park. Uh, but this came from a church actually in Louisville. They picked it up at the Louisville Slugger plant before they came over. And it's inscribed with the prayers of a church full of people for this church plant. And I want this bat always to remain in Okinawa. And I, I want it to always pass on from one church planter to the next as a modern day shepherding staff um, in honor of running 26 seconds around the base every time God hits a home run in the context of your church plant. And he already did yesterday. Guys, listen, they had a festival for the Ginawan community. How many people showed up for that thing? Over 100 people in the Ginawan community, and they, they haven't even launched a church yet. And um, for that, you need to take the core team just and take 26 seconds, throw a feast, throw a party, and celebrate the good work that God is doing. Because, look, if God's the one building the church, it's not dependent upon our work, right? We can feast and celebrate uh, along the way. So, John, your shepherding staff. And uh, I'll get that jersey to you as soon as it gets here. Yeah. I love you. Um, Hey, do you want like 30 seconds? I can give you 30 seconds if you want it. Sometimes I'm a man of many words. Sometimes I'm a man of not very many words. So uh, I think today is probably the latter. Um, I was thinking about, praying about what I should say. And uh, the words just thank you just kept coming to mind. Uh, we just want to uh, say thank you to this church family um, for the past six years you've been uh, a great family to us. You'll continue being a great family to us here on this island. Um, this is not goodbye. Uh, this is, hey, we're moving 30 minutes down the road kind of thing. So we're glad for that. We're glad that, um, uh, that we'll still be in the neighborhood, the Okinawa neighborhood together, and we'll be working together. So um, from time to time, we're going we're gonna to ask you for some help because we're the little brother that kind of still needs some help. And you guys already have showed up and, and done that this past uh, uh, weekend. Um, we had 90 pumpkins because of people in this church uh, family. We had um, more, enough volunteers because of uh, people in this church family. Um, the, a lot of that festival yesterday was, uh, was you got, because of you guys' help. So thank you, and thank you for the life-giving community that you've provided us with. Uh, coming here with uh, no experience and no language or anything when we showed up in Okinawa. We were, we were rookies, and uh, you guys kept us sane. You kept us alive. You did a lot of things for us, so thank you, and uh, yeah, thank you. That's all I have to say. <clears throat> oh, oh. All right, before John sits down, and Melissa, Melissa's got a baby. Go ahead. You're good. You're good. You're okay. Um, this is a long-term commitment. I just want you to know that. We're not just like doing this little celebratory thing and then like washing our hands and be like, all right, that was good. They're gone. Um, opened up some seats. Thank you. Um, in, the, in the States, when you plan a church, usually the commitment's for like three to five years to make sure they're viable and sustainable. In Japan, fam, it is a 15 to 20-year commitment. So I just want you to know, though most of you, all of us will likely be gone, this church, and some of you will come back, we are making a public commitment today for the next 15 to 20 years to ensure that this church plant is viable, self-sustaining, and reproducing. 
Uh, that is a financial commitment. It is a, uh, we're keeping John on salary here as a part of our team so that a young church plant in Okinawa doesn't have to budget to pay their planting pastor. We are also budgeting as a church to help cover the cost of their rental space that they will need when they launch, hopefully, uh, on Christmas Day. And we've given John a standing, it's not just an invitation, it's an expectation that he comes back regularly and actively recruits from our church family for people to participate in the life of the church. So as a family, we are making a long-term commitment to the uh, good and the flourishing of the Okinawan people through the establishment of communities of promise. Love you, John. Thanks. All right, we need to get to baptisms. Before we do, I just want to show you this verse because we, we think about feasting. We're like, man, I don't know if we should feast. We're in a dark place. No, feasting is most powerful when we're in the darkest places. Look at, this is from Psalm 23. Look at what it says. You prepare a table before me. Where? In the presence of my enemies. Guys, that's what people who belong to the, the community of promise do. God is faithful so that when we are participating in the life of communities of promise, in the deepest and darkest places, he gives his most life-giving feasts for our good as a family and for the good of those who have not yet been adopted in. Uh, Grant and the team are going to uh, come and we're going to respond. And as we do, I would just invite you to reflect, are you a rebel who is living far from home? If you are, the day of the Lord could occur later today. Come home to the Father while there is still time to know his mercy. Are you a follower of Jesus who has yet to take on a sign of the promise, the sign of the promise? Why not today? Why not today? And family, if you have been seduced into a comfortable existence in this broken and dark kingdom, why not today make a choice to begin following Jesus as a part of his community of promise into the dark and broken places, not for your own flourishing, but for the flourishing of other people.